As is well known, the industrial relations climate in Britain in the summer of 1914 and for much of the three years before had been unusually fraught, and the picture in London mirrored problems nationwide. Most famous of all, throughout 1914, the London building workers had been in dispute with the master builders over union recognition. Walkouts on building sites over unionists refusing to work with non-union men had provoked a backlash among the employers at a time when house construction and other building had been unusually flat. After many such lightning strikes, as they were called at the time, a walkout on the Pearl Insurance Office's site in Hoban at the end of 1913 had, provoked, had proved the final straw. And from 24 January 1914, a general lockout by the masters laid off some 30 to 40,000 men and shut every big site in the capital, including the London County Council's new county hall on the South Bank. The dispute gripped the trade union world. Two of the ten platforms for the huge May Day demonstration in Hyde Park in 1914 were devoted to the building workers and their cause. Later that month, it seemed that the dispute might spread to the provinces, with the masters talking of a national lockout to bring the London men to heel. By June, after nearly six months out of work, only the stonemasons had voted to accept a compromise offered by the employers and their members returned to work in early July. But the other building unions rejected a similar agreement after numerous ballots, despite their leaders urging a settlement. As late as Wednesday, 29 July, there was an ultimatum from the master builders threatening once more a lockout nationwide. That spring and summer in London was marked by industrial strife in every direction. In May, the militant London and Provincial Union of Vehicle Workers threatened a general strike on the buses over hours, wages and paid holidays. And there was trouble on the trams over the employment of boys in men's jobs in late July. A strike in May at Pink's Jam Factory in Southwark saw attacks on Carmen driving wagons from the yard, the warehousemen demanding higher wages and an end to boy labour. The works closed pending negotiations. A public campaign by shop assistants for shorter working hours tried to win over London churches and metropolitan borough councils in May. And on Friday, 3 July, a strike at Woolwich Arsenal, the nation's premier armaments factory, brought out 1,500 men, members of the Amalgamated Society of Engineers. One of their number had refused to erect a machine on a concrete bed laid by non-union labor and had been sacked, bringing the Royal Gun Carriage Department to a halt. A day later, and some 8,000 were out, seeking 100% trade union membership at the Arsenal. 97% were thought already to be members. And almost all the Arsenal's 10,000 workers were on strike by Monday. Mass picketing around the Arsenal gates led to some violent scenes, quickly quelled by the strike committee, anxious to get public opinion on the workers' side. Even Prime Minister Herbert Asquith was involved in settling the dispute. After four days, the sacked worker was reinstated, pending a court of inquiry into the dispute, and the Arsenal returned to normal working on 9 July, just in time, we might think. Most worrying of all was the threat of a triple alliance, the phrase borrowed from European diplomacy, the partnership of Austria, Germany, and Italy from 1882, involving the miners, railwaymen's, and transport workers' unions. Negotiations began in late May to establish that a strike by one union would mean a strike by all. London railwaymen were prominent among the militants. 
the threat of a coalfields dispute in remote Durham or Ebu Vale, bringing the national rail network to a halt and closing the Port of London, took on nightmarish possibilities for government and business. The unions debated and endorsed the alliance through June, with sympathy strikes becoming the biggest artillery in the workers' industrial armory ready primed for that autumn's negotiations over pay and conditions. The prospect provoked both fear and wrath. That July, the Reverend William Inge, Dean of St Paul's, denounced trade unions as criminal combinations whose leaders deserved to be executed as rebels against society. That May Day demonstration of 1914 had also been notable for the many expressions of transnational worker solidarity, a sentiment that continued to be fostered and valued by, no doubt among many other fraternal organisations, the London Trades Council, LTC. It was a sentiment that didn't extend to everyone because on 30 July at the final meeting of the Executive Committee before the declaration of war, an event that still seemed not to weigh on many minds even as late as 30 July, the LTC had pledged its help to the Transport Workers' Federation campaign against cheap coloured labour in Britain and was proposing to organise a conference on the question that autumn. But it certainly did extend to the workers of Germany, with a delegation of Messrs. Klott, Bruckner and Wendel from Berlin arriving at Victoria Station on the evening of 31 July 1914. In the event, they had to scuttle back, just managing to evade the travel blockade imposed as Britain declared war on Germany at 11 p.m. on 4 August. Pretty much overnight, well, within two or three weeks, I think, the industrial relations climate was dramatically transformed. The bulk of the labor movement became vociferously patriotic, as Martin Pugh puts it in his recent history of the Labour Party. And that was true for both industrial and political arms. The Triple Alliance was effectively suspended for the duration. Strikes quickly ended on 5 August or soon after, and even the adamantine builders' dispute was eventually settled on 14 August, when the last of the building unions, the plasterers, agreed to the terms offered in June. Most of London's leading Labour figures, like Will Crooks in Woolwich, Will Thorne in West Ham, Robert Blatchford of the Clarion, the veteran former Marxist H.H. Hindman, Ben Tillett of the Dock Workers, Riverside and General Workers Union, the DWRG, Jimmy Thomas of the Railwomen, Havelock Wilson of the Seamen, and many others became active on the recruitment platforms. Even so, we should note the confusion that still permeated the ranks of labour in these opening weeks of the war, with workers only relinquishing their internationalism reluctantly. The LTC's first wartime delegate conference at Club Union Hall, Clerkenwell Road, on 13 August, with 101 delegates representing 69 trade union societies or branches and eight local borough-based trades and labour councils, expressed its horror at the present state of Europe, recognising that the war is a war of rulers and not of the peoples, expresses its fraternal greetings to the workers of all countries, and expresses the hope that they may be able to maintain their organisations in order. An international congress of the International Socialist Bureau have been planned in Vienna for the end of the month, and that a closer bond of unity may be brought about under a United States of Europe. 
As the war on the home front unfolded, it became plain that it would bring momentous changes for Labour in London. I want to summarise briefly four main changes impacting upon trade unions and their members, though there were doubtless many others. First, the dramatic shift from a London economy of traditionally chronic labour surpluses, most notably revealed in seasonal unemployment and the casual labour problem. There were extraordinary manifestations of this across every London industry, but I'll restrict my examples to the Port of London. Uh, this is the transformation of the previous uh, labour surplus that all industries had experienced in, in London, with casual labour and seasonal unemployment as the problem. As early as January 1915, the Times journalist Michael McDonough counted 30 steamships in the river waiting their turn to be unloaded, held up in inextricable confusion due to the scarcity of labour. Not enough labour available at the London docks, he noted. What an unprecedented state of affairs. Average daily employment of labourers at the port rose from 7,800, 1914, to 11,200 in 1915. To supplement the labour supply, boys of 15 and 16 were taken on, and so were older men unfit for army service. From 1916, the Transport Workers' Battalion, soldiers who were often former dockers, boosted local labour at times of shortage on application of the port employers, and sometimes to the resentment of the unions. Even so, the DWRG flourished, organising parts of the riverside, like the foreign cattle market at Deptford, never organised before, continuing to negotiate ship by ship in the handling of difficult cargoes, those handling difficulties made worse by particularly submarine warfare in 1917, which delayed many ships coming into the port so that cargo spoiled, even if they got through the uh, submarine blockade. Frequently made more difficult by the exigencies of war, negotiating pay rises at a time of spiralling prices, which I'll come back to in a minute, and in 1917, taking on Mary Carlin as assistant organiser, recruiting men, but especially women in the docks and in factories, especially those manufacturing munitions of war. The Dock Workers' Union was also the General Workers' Union, as its title expressed. This unprecedented demand for labour had some strange, almost dramatic effects in London. The Salvation Army night hostels for homeless men and women emptied as if by sorcery. So did the London workhouses for the able-bodied poor. In Lambeth, 48 inmates of Prince's Road Workhouse had left by March 1915 to work at Woolwich Dockyard. 41 of them were over 60 years old and a further four over 70. At Wandsworth, an institution built for the able-bodied became essentially an old people's home by early 1916. Space could be rationalised to free up workhouses for other purposes, like internment camps for German-born Londoners, or as hostels for Belgian refugees, or as overspill military hospitals. Similarly, despite the stresses of war and a probable rise in London's population, the number of certified lunatics in metropolitan mental hospitals was lower by almost 16% between 1914 and 1918. Even more dramatically, the number of men received in the London prisons fell by nearly 63% between 1913, 34,000, and 1918, 12,5,000. The commissioners of prisons concluded that the prisons of the country may be largely emptied of the petty offender when the conditions of labour are such as to secure full and continuous employment for all. 
I mentioned Mary Carlin and the women brought into wartime industries, and Deborah is going to be speaking about women and the war. But there was one other factor related to the labor shortage that's worth dwelling on here. I noted the LTC's concerns around colored labor before the war, but the wartime labor shortage meant that men were needed wherever in the world they might come from. So worries over foreign labor reached something like a fever pitch among some London trade unions during the war. The numbers of Chinese seamen in the East End, for instance, said to be displacing British seamen for lower pay, began to provoke questions in Parliament in the summer of 1916. In September, the TUC expressed alarm at the extent of Chinese and cheap Asiatic labor in the merchant fleet. A Times journalist considered the number of Chinese in the East End has certainly increased, with lodging houses spreading beyond Limehouse Causeway and Pennyfields. The invasion is becoming serious, it said. This drum was beaten loudest by the Seamen's Union, at this point still named the National Sailors and Firemen's Union, and led by Havelock Wilson and Captain Edward Tupper, racist ultra-patriots both. Its fortnightly professionally printed paper for members, the Seamen, carried frequent articles on the threat to British sailors' jobs from the Yellow Men, or Chinese sailors, and Asiatic labor. The Union claimed that the Chinese population of East London had increased by 7,000, though true figures are unobtainable, and almost certainly this was a large exaggeration. In 1918, for instance, Pennyfields, the main street of, the China, of Chinese Limehouse, was home to just 182 Chinamen. And it seems unlikely that even in the war years, many more than a couple of thousand were living in the East End at any one time in a population that remained highly mobile. One new departure, however, did become apparent by early 1917, a tendency of employers desperately short of labor everywhere to recruit Chinamen into industries beyond the riverside. The London hospital's attempt to employ Chinese porters and kitchen staff was met with hostility from other workers who refused to work with them. Similarly, some white crews refused to ship out on boats carrying Chinese crew during the war. The proposal in the London hospital was abandoned, though a Chinese chef, Yan Si, proved indispensable and was allowed to remain in the hospital kitchens for the duration. Around the same time, the Bethnal Green Board of Guardians decided to employ Chinese porters in the workhouses, chosen from men submarined whilst in boats carrying provisions to e England, so again, Chinese sailors, and replacing old men who used to do the work but who had since left the house. The proposal caused a row, but seems to have been implemented nonetheless. Later in the war, Chinese labor was also used on aerodrome construction for the new air ministry. By then, there were diplomatic difficulties in the way of boycotting the Chinese workmen. China had declared war on Germany and Austria, and so became an ally in August 1917. The same difficulties were apparent in the employment of black men from Asia, Africa, and especially the Caribbean. Again, seamen were key. West Indian seamen have always formed part of our marine, and many of them are married to English wives and domiciled in the port. They were noted as men of good character and regarded as good comrades by white seamen. They made up much of the small black community in Canning Town before and during the war. To accommodate new arrivals from Africa and the Caribbean and Laska seamen from the Indian subcontinent, Charitable Endeavour opened a sailor's rest in St Anne Street Limehouse in October 1917. But by then, new arrivals had been joined by 
I quote, a much less desirable element, this the judgment of a charity organization society worker in the port, of young unsettled men who come over on banana boats and as emergency hands and get discharged here. They have no very keen desire to go back to the Caribbean and loaf about the port, sponge where they can, and are a cause of trouble and disorder. This latter migration, bolstered by West African seamen, seems likely to have been the origin of the Black Lodging House and Cafe District in Cable Street, Stepney, which became so notorious after the Second World War. This aspect of coloured labour also raised trade union hackles. One delegate of the London and Provincial Union of Licensed Vehicle Workers at an LTC meeting in January 1917 moved a resolution that this council realizing that black labor will have to be introduced into this country if the war continues, calls upon the government to enter into peace negotiations at once. The motion was ruled out of order, on procedural grounds rather than as a matter of policy, it seems. And to show that these union members were reflecting more widely held opinions, there were some occasional anti-black disturbances in the East End during 1917 and 1918, and indeed just after the war, anti-black rioting in Britain's seaports, a prominent event of uh, the spring and summer of 1919. If the labor shortages of war had a contradictory impact on the labor movement, removing unemployment on the one hand, but fostering anxieties of foreign competition on the other, the second effect of the war had a unifying and energizing impact on trade unions. This was the extraordinary rise in wartime prices for all the staples of life apart from rents, frozen with effect from Christmas Eve 1915 after agitation involving rent strikes and protests across London and other great British cities. Price rises, of course, impacted adversely on the real value of wartime wages. Throughout the war, the cost of living generally outpaced any gain in wage rates. Most workers' hourly pay, men and women alike, struggled to play catch-up in an economic climate where, measured by wages alone, the prices of food and other commodities made ever bigger claims on family resources. The one very important exception to this general picture is the case of unskilled London men in previously overstocked industries like the building trades and on the docks, where the huge pool of available labor had traditionally kept wages cripplingly low. But during the war, the wages of the poorest paid dock workers in the Port of London more than doubled from a daily rate of 5 and 10 in July 1914 to 11 and 9 in October 1918. And a bricklayer's laborer earning sixpence halfpenny an hour in 1914 was getting one and threepence by the end of the war. Both these increases outstripped the rise in the cost of living over the same period, which approximately doubled. As the journalist Arthur Gleason truly remarked in 1917, England now paid a living wage to people who had never had it before. These and other wage gains didn't take place without a struggle. In 1915, a strike on the LCC's tramways began to shut down the network from 14 May. The strike was over pay and conditions and the inequitable distribution of a cost of living war bonus that only applied to better off employees. The LCC sacked strikers of military age. Of course, the war being a tremendous uh, addition to employers' uh, um, uh, forceful tactics against uh, strikers, especially after conscription from 1916. 
uh, hired new men, leading to some violence and stoning of blackleg trams. By 1 June, the LCC conceded the main demands and the strikers returned to work, though the position of sacked men was still unresolved. In general, though, 1915 and 1916 were the quietest years for industrial militancy in a long time. But in 1917, food prices climbed steeply to peak in September at 106% of July 1914 levels. From the spring of 1917 in London, trade union militancy at last rose to something like pre-war levels. The London bus workers came out in May, pulling all buses off the streets of London for three days. Interfering with public transport for munition workers was a wartime offence, and the risk of legal action was one influence on the, on the unions to settle. After government intervention, the strikers went back on the promise of an industrial conference and consideration of the pay claim as a war bonus. More worryingly for government, and most famously, of course, in 1917, a wave of unofficial strikes of munition workers in Lancashire spread all over the north of England and then to the London munition-making districts. There were strikes of skilled engineers in Crayford, Erith, where the Vickers machine gun works were, and chiefly Woolwich, was employing 70,000 people by this point, about um, 30,000, I think, of them uh, women. Uh, Deborah will have a better figure than that. The strikes brought out thousands of workers who, though not on strike, depended on toolmakers to keep their engines running. Eight of the national strikers' leading shop stewards were arrested under the Defence of the Realm Act and brought to Bow Street, where they were remanded in Brixton Prison. And there were police raids subsequently on trade union premises in London. Under this formidable pressure, the strike was settled, and the men returned to work with a promise of no further victimisation. These harsh, almost panic-stricken government actions were fueled by, some of, by news of the first Russian revolution and the abdication of the Tsar, which reached London on 16 March. There were major events, particularly one at the Royal Albert Hall, to celebrate the Russian revolution in London and indeed across the country. And the revolution itself gave a great deal of impetus to the anti-war uh, movement, which had begun to pick up after 1916. When Christopher Addison, Minister of Munitions, and General Sir William Robertson, Chief of the Imperial General Staff, addressed a meeting of 2,000 engineers, all men, it seems, at Woolwich Arsenal in July, they were met by a chorus of the red flag sung from the back of the audience. Government inquiries into the causes of industrial unrest this spring made worrying reading. The inquiry into London and the southeast concluded that the unrest is real, widespread, and in some directions extreme, and such as to constitute a national danger unless dealt with promptly and effectively. We are at this moment within view of a possible social upheaval, or at least extensive and manifold strikes. The primary causes were first the cost of living, aggravated by concerns over profiteering, and secondly, the daily hard grind of wartime labour. All this anxiety brought some relief on the cost of living front. During 1917, wage increases were recorded in London in all the building trades among cabinet makers, printers, bakers, dock workers, shoemakers, tailors, indeed practically everyone taking home a weekly wage packet. I realise I'm running out of time, John, so I'm going to try and speed up. But, um, uh, and strikes, of course, didn't end in 1917. There was the most famous moment at the end of August 1918 when the Metropolitan Police went on strike over trade union recognition and a pay claim and a pension claim as well. Um, 
and where Lloyd George famously uh, noted to a friend that he, he had stared revolution in the face when he met the, uh, uh, the, the, the trade union leaders. Um, the third effect of, of war on labor conditions that I would spell out here is that despite price rises outpacing wage increases for the semi-skilled and above, living standards of London workers, especially the poorest, were transformed by the war. It was the effect of full employment on the London working class that had such an impact on the standard of life during the war. All families, especially those with children over the school leaving age of 14, could expect to generate a household income from many sources, with each often earning well and regularly. It's an unprecedented state of affairs in London. Just a few sound bites. The poorest felt the improvement most. In 1913-14, the LCC had fed an average of 35,000 poor school children with 146,000 school dinners each week. By 1918-19, that had dropped to 9,500 children, receiving just 22,000 dinners each week. In 1918, the proportion of poorly nourished school children in London was considerably less than half the percentage in 1913. As with food, so with clothing. By 1918, the LCC's school clothing cupboards, from which exceptionally necessitous children used to receive garments before the war, are no longer resorted to. And of course, the condition in the workers' homes, although housing didn't improve at all in the war, and indeed got worse, the condition of uh, living conditions in many homes improved with the capacity to buy furniture and so on. A more prosperous working class and full employment acted powerfully on the growth and prosperity of the trade union movement. In 1914, British trade unions had 4.15 million members, of whom 437,000 were women. In 1919, the total was 7.93 million members, almost doubled, including 1.3 million women. The historic high point would be the following year, 1920. But from then till the beginning of the Second World War, numbers fell away, though beginning to climb again from 1935. Within this broad picture, many trade unions became prosperous institutions. Ben Tillett's dock workers, for instance, the income of the London district from membership subscriptions in 1914 uh, was tre had trebled by 1918. Finally, the, my fourth sort of the impact of the war, the, um, the unions did not only get more powerful and prosperous during the war in terms of numbers and money coming in, but they became uniquely valued by the state at every level. At the local level, in the London boroughs and urban districts, representatives of labor were appointed to military tribunals hearing conscription appeals, to local pensions committees, and to local food committees once shortages began to bite during 1917. Indeed, the formation of local food committees was an early demand of the London Food Vigilance Committee, an organization established by the LTC, the London Labor Party, and the Joint Committee of Cooperative Societies to root out profiteering and expose inequitable distribution of supplies to poor districts. They had also called vociferously for rationing, eventually brought in by government in 1918. The LTC and trade unions were generally also in the van of those pressing for a huge house building program to be established after the war, led by local authorities building for rent. Indeed, the trade unions in London, and no doubt elsewhere, had done much to stimulate the debate on social reconstruction after the war from 1917 on. 
Of course, some of this all went backwards from 1919, but nothing, I believe, returned to the social conditions existing before 1914. In particular, working-class living standards in London made a definitive leap forward that proved irreversible. Uh, when the London School of Economics uh, established a poverty survey in 1929 to 30 to look again at child, what the conditions that Charles Booth had found 40 years before. And the new survey made it very plain that the gap of 40 years was, in fact, the major turning point was the First World War. Everything was, could be explained, as it were, before the war and after. Uh, the survey found that the war had largely wiped away the absolute poverty uncovered by Charles Booth in the 1880s and 90s, and which continued to blight the lives of millions of Londoners right up to the end of 1914. The reduction of the proportion of persons in poverty in the 40 years is enormous, whichever figures we take, the new survey concluded, with one measure in East London showing that family poverty of 38% around 1890 had fallen to 6% by 1930. The war was the watershed here, and it washed away forever the scourge of mass poverty that had made the East End of London known throughout the world as a byword for degradation before 1914. 